2: There are some aspects of the opinion even beyond the procurium aspect that sort of speak to me to the, the way that this is really crafted to allow the court to deny cert if it wants to. So it, they point um, at multiple points to opinions by some of the conservative justices in Trump v. Vance, the case involving uh, whether or not Trump could be subject to a criminal process from the Manhattan D.A. while he was in office. The the opinion cites not only to uh, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence; they also point to uh, Justice Thomas's dissent in Vance, a line where he says that the president doesn't have total immunity in all circumstances. So there's sort of a tip of the hat to the conservative justices there.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare podcast, February seventh, two thousand twenty-four. Yesterday, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals rejected former President Donald Trump's appeal concerning his presidential immunity defense in the federal government's January 6th case against him. I sat down with Lawfare senior editors Quinta Juressic, Scott R. Anderson, and Roger Parloff, and with Lawfare executive editor Natalie Orpit, In front of a live audience on YouTube and Riverside for a deep dive in the ruling, we discussed what comes next. We talked about what the Supreme Court might do in response. We talked about the court's ruling and its meaning and its unanimity. It was a great discussion, and it's the Lawfare Podcast. February 7th, the D.C. Circuit Rejects Trump's Presidential Immunity Claim. Quinta, get us started. We had a big delay. Everybody was wringing their hands, including us. Some people were doing a little more hand wringing than other people. What do we what can we say about why the delay happened uh, now that we've seen the opinion? What do we know?
2: So the context for uh, listeners who haven't been wringing their hands quite as much as I certainly have been, um, is that the DC circuit moved pretty quickly to uh, hear this case, to hear the arguments, they seemed quite aware of the enormous importance of what they were considering, especially because this case has stayed at the trial level until this immunity issue is resolved. So essentially, the whole thing is on pause. Um, and that is, of course, important, although Jack Smith, uh, won't and can't really say this directly because it raises the question of whether or not, uh, the case is going to go to trial in such a time as to be able to finish before the November election. So, uh, we had all sat down here to talk about oral arguments after the fact and confidently, I know Ben, you and I said this, others may have as well, uh, said that we were sure that the D.C. Circuit would rule within 48 hours or by the end of the week or maybe within two weeks. And instead, they took a month. I I just want to say it's 48 hours in geologic time. Right. Well, so the thing is, you know, and listeners should be aware of this, of course, on the normal schedule of an appellate proceeding, um, that is very fast. Um, Appellate courts like to take their time in, in this instance, it seems like they, they really sped things up, but nevertheless, given that the clock is kind of ticking down until the election, that every minute kind of counts. Um, so it's been a month, uh, I think exactly a month, and we finally have this ruling. Of course, we don't know what happened behind the scenes, but it's notable that this is a per curiam ruling, so it means that there's just one ruling um, sort of issued in the name of the court. Not in the name of any particular judge. And that's particularly notable because this is a panel with a pretty wide range of uh, ideological views. So we had two judges, Michelle Childs and Florence Pan, who are appointed by Joe Biden. Uh, one judge, Karen LaCroft Henderson, who was appointed by George H.W. Bush, um, and who is a pretty solid, I think it's fair to say, conservative vote on the court. Um, so I think it is fair to surmise that the delay, such as it was, might have been because uh, the judges were really working together to try to write an opinion that they could all agree on and speak with one voice, presumably of the mind that, you know, being able to say this is coming from all of us, this is the view of the court as a whole, really strengthens the the sort of the credibility of the decision um, for the public, but also for the Anbank DC circuit and possibly for the Supreme Court as well.
0: All right. So let's walk through uh, the various components of the opinion before we talk about the uh, implications of the opinion and its prospects before higher courts and its implications for for a trial schedule. Scott, uh, neither side raised a, a jurisdictional issue, but a group called American Oversight did uh, you were, I don't want to say contemptuous of this argument, but not impressed by this argument, and uh, we had a lot of back and forths about it on this show at the time, um, including having uh, its author, the author of the American Oversight Brief, uh, discuss it with us, walk us through the argument and what this the D.C. Circuit panel did with it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So American Oversight posited a pretty novel jurisdictional critique um, that neither party had advanced because both parties really were seeking review of this. Remember, uh, pre- former President Trump is seeking interlocutory appeal of these issues. It's trying to get review of them. And then Jack Smith originally tried to take them directly to the Supreme Court for a quick resolution and was shot down by the Supreme Court in December. Um, so both parties, had, had, by the time this got to the D.C. Circuit, had already thrown their lot in with the idea that the courts can review this. American Oversight argued that under a Supreme Court decision called Midland Asphalt from 1989, that actually if you are dealing with a right to not ha- be go to trial, that that decision uses the phrase explicit, as in you need to have an explicit constitutional or statutory guarantee – to have that issue be subject to interlocutory appeal. And the American Oversight kind of seized on this particular argument, this particular clause, saying, well, look – what Trump's arguing here isn't really explicit. Arguably, you know, parts of it like verge closer to being explicit than not. It's his real main argument, though, is really structural, though. It's this idea that there's this is an implied immunity for the president because that's just how we think about the separation of powers working. And they said, well, look, Midland asphalt said it has to be explicit and it's not explicit. So on its kind of plain face, the argument made some sense. But the panel wasn't really persuaded for it uh, by it. And I think for reasons why I, I will be honest, I did I did not find it particularly persuasive either in that it is a highly, highly literal reading of a Supreme Court decision from many decades ago where the panel said essentially, you know, we really shouldn't make a mountain out of a molehill on the wording of certain cases. Uh, Here, the panel read the word explicit being used to basically distinguish between two different bundles of legal rights that they were discussing in Midlands Asphalt, not as uh, kind of establishing a strict limit on what sorts of claims could be brought forward. And in particular, they noted that it doesn't really make a lot of sense to treat implicit and explicit rules for avoiding trial as subject to different rules of interlocutory appeal. The whole logic of interlocutory appeal is that these are matters that can dispose of this matter or be particularly uh, damaging to the underlying claim. And, And here, in both implicit and explicit claims do that same thing, essentially. So if you were to say, well, look, he has a right to not be tried, but it's only implicit, the idea that because it's implicit, not explicit, we should hold that to the end, doesn't do a lot of justice to the actual underlying legal principles. And then finally, the court noted uh, that, in fact, the Supreme Court has previously said there are certain circumstances where, because the president is the president and involves pretty sui generis legal considerations, where the court carves out some unique procedural rules. And they basically said, we think that weighs here because – It would not be great for a former president to have to go on criminal trial only for us to later say, after the fact, no, he has a right to not go on criminal trial. It just was implicit, not express. Based on all these factors, they basically said we're going to read Midland's asphalt as a strong advisory, as as a general principle that we should treat the collateral order doctrine. This idea that you can pursue these matters on appeal in the middle of a trial, as uh, applying only very narrowly in the criminal context, but not so narrowly, not so rigidly as only requiring the explicit rule. And once they reached that conclusion, um, the argument advanced by American oversight more or less fell out, and the panel had no problem establishing that they had jurisdiction as both parties agreed in proceeding to the merits.
0: All right, so Quinta walk us through the merits nobody expected trump to prevail i don't think on the other hand this seems pretty authoritative and complete in its rejection of his arguments how does it line up with judge chutkin's ruling below
2: i'll confess i, I have not read this alongside judge chutkin's ruling um but overall the sort of t- i think the takeaway is pretty similar they're both pretty resounding rejections of trump's argument um and importantly and this is something we can talk about later they address the issue um at a sort of sweeping in a sweeping way saying there is no absolute categorical uh, criminal immunity for former presidents rather than kind of getting down into the details of was this or that act as charged in the indictment something for which trump could potentially be immune so it's it's written in a pretty, I think, clear and straightforward way. It essentially sets out um, three arguments that Trump made and sort of goes through each of them in turn. Um, so I'll sort of give a, a very high level overview. We can dive into them more um, as we like. So first off, um, Trump argues that separation of powers considerations uh, bar courts from reviewing what he claims are official presidential actions. This is the, for listeners who are listening to oral argument, this is the argument about uh, Marbury versus Madison. Um, and you may recall that Judge Henderson had a long exchange with Trump's counsel about, uh, their interpretation of Marbury, um, and the, the distinction between a discretionary and a ministerial act. I will, hold back from giving a detailed overview of, of this argument. But I think the real takeaway essentially is that, well, yes, there are certain things that the courts can't review when it comes to presidential actions. Um, there are certain things that they can review. And those things include when the president has a specific legal or constitutional duty uh, to act in a certain way, to take a certain action. Um, and in this instance, Trump is alleged to have broken the law, Um, he did not abide by legal restrictions. And so for that reason, essentially, because he is being prosecuted, there is, uh, appropriately judicial review of his actions. So that brings us to the second argument, which is that criminal immunity essentially is necessary to ensure the proper functioning of the executive branch. Um, the short version of this argument is essentially that, you know, the, the, without some kind of criminal immunity, uh, presidents will constantly be looking over their shoulders, they'll be uncertain uh, whether they might be prosecuted after leaving office, and that will just kind of prevent them from from doing their job. The court is not particularly impressed by this. It points out that, you know, up until now, (laughs) past presidents did assume themselves to be subject to potential criminal liability, which is something that you see and they and they point to this directly in Gerald Ford's Pardon of Richard Nixon. Um, and that doesn't seem to have, you know, substantially restrained president's ability to, to carry out their jobs. Um, so they're, they're not particularly worried about that. And on the other hand, there is a really strong interest, not only on the part of the public, um, but also on the part of the executive branch, which I think is important, in ensuring that there is criminal accountability. Um, for alleged violations of the law. And particularly the court says because, uh, the conduct alleged, um, on behalf of Trump is sort of uniquely anti-democratic, that it was an effort to override the votes of American citizens and that it was also an effort to kind of override uh, what the court describes as the most fundamental check on executive power, which is elections. Um, and so in that, in that sense, um, it is deeply, deeply important that presidents be constrained rather than sort of be able to do whatever they like without regarding the check on their power that elections represent. Uh, that brings us to the third argument, which is a bit of a technical one. Um, this has to do with the impeachment judgment clause, which essentially states that uh, presidents who are, well, people other than presidents, but for the, the purpose of this conversation, presidents, um, who are convicted in an impeachment proceeding shall be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment. Um, so essentially, if you were convicted in an impeachment proceeding, then you you can still be criminally prosecuted. Trump kind of flips that on its head and says, well, I was acquitted, uh, for my conduct, uh, over January 6th. Therefore, I cannot be prosecuted. Um, and the court is also not particularly impressed by this. Um, I think we can pretty fairly say that this, this is a section that may have been written by, uh, Judge Florence Pan. She, she had a long exchange with Trump's counsel on this during oral argument, kind of just going into why this doesn't really hold together logically, why it's inconsistent um, with the history and the the thinking behind the impeachment judgment clause in the first place. And I think importantly, um, she kind of turns the argument on its head and points out that Trump has potentially uh, really created a logical problem for himself. So if he's arguing that uh, the impeachment judgment clause requires a conviction before prosecution, then that means that he's sort of acknowledging that if it doesn't have that requirement, then the clause doesn't provide any, any impediment to the prosecution. And also that that suggests that there can be no total absolute criminal immunity for former presidents because he is acknowledging that if you were convicted in an impeachment proceeding for particular conduct, then you could be prosecuted on that basis. So, uh, the court is kind of poking holes in, in Trump's own argument there. Um, that's the, the very, very short version. We can get more down into the details and there's certainly a lot to dig into, but I think the takeaway for me is that this is pretty, a pretty, straightforward and uh, resounding rejection of the case that Trump made.
0: All right. Roger, we all expected not necessarily this specific result in the form of the jurisdictional argument that uh, Scott made and the three-pronged argument that Quinta just made on the merits, but we all expected Trump was going to lose. The only question was how. Is this opinion a big deal, given that we all expected it and it took a bit longer than we thought? And if so, why?
4: I think it is. An aspect of it that I didn't expect was that it's unanimous. I thought there would be two votes. I thought there would be a concurrence. I thought it would be a two-to-one decision, not with a dissent, but with a concurrence. Here, it's all three, and and as you've both said, um, you know, it's a range of, politically quite a range, um, with Karen LeCraft Henderson, who was originally appointed as a district judge by Reagan, uh, really uh, probably due to uh, Strom Thurmond uh, uh, was her patron. So this is a range of uh, political thought. And, um, the fact that they could get her on board and it's a solid opinion, it makes the, it makes the idea of a rehearing and in bank inconceivable. And, uh, that not then. And, and I don't think Trump will apply for one, but I don't, I think it also lessens the possibility that the Supreme Court would take it as well. The other thing that I thought was interesting and it, it actually, I think most people will read it. You'll read it and you'll say, oh, well, now it's decided presidents aren't uh, immune uh, from criminal prosecution. And that's a fair reading, but it actually is case specific to a degree. You know, it says at the beginning, we're actually we're talking about this case. It repeats that at the end. It says at the very end, the last paragraph, something like we have balanced former President Trump's asserted interests against the vital public interests. And we we find that uh, it compels the rejection of his claim in this case. So, and the reason they say that, and, and Quinta mentioned it, you know, there are these general reasons they don't think presidents are immune. But then they also threw in a few specifics about this case and the fact that, for instance, he was, he is accused of, um violating crucial provisions of the constitution the the what's called the executive vesting clause for instance which is article 2 section 1 clause 1 you 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 have an appointment for 4 years and then you need to get reelected and he's violating that and this was an argument that actually there was a, a an amicus brief uh that was proposed by a number of um uh, former Republican officials. It was written by Richard Bernstein, who's a former Scalia appointee. This was on behalf of people like uh, Judge Ludig and um uh, the former uh, Deputy uh, AG Larry Thompson and so on. And... They were suggesting this, and, and I infer uh, as a way of appealing to more conservative judges who felt that Chutkin's ruling was too across the board, too open-ended, and, and that presidents would never have the opportunity to say they might be immune for some act. And this allows a little more case by case for, and, and I think that's important, especially if, say, hypothetically, you had some political party that believed very heavily in tit-for-tat and uh, had some leaders who were not, you know, uh, that, that were uh, had some bad faith and uh, bad judgment, um, you might find, you know, suppose somebody tried to prosecute Obama for the attack on uh, al or I'm mispronouncing his name, but uh, you know what I'm trying to say i i think you would still have leeway here to say, well, that was you know uh more of a discretionary act of the president within you know it wasn't uh directly opposed to general criminal law as we think about it uh and and it gives wiggle room so i think it's a it's a it's a wise decision as well as uh you know a strategically uh uh, and more bulletproof decision than uh, Judge Tuckins. So I want to I want to come
0: back to a point that Roger uh, just made and ask Scott about it. But before I do, I'm curious for your views on the certworthiness of this because I can look at it both ways. I can say, on the one hand, this is not a certworthy question, right? The district court was right. The appellate court is right, they have different emphases, but presidential immunity from trying to overthrow the constitutional order just isn't a thing, and we don't need another layer of appellate review to determine that. There's not a conflict in the circuits among the matter. We don't know exactly what the Supreme Court would do with this, but we know there are not five justices to immunize the former president on these charges. So, you know, cert denied, let the thing go forward. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you can say, come on, there is no way the Supreme Court is going to let the DC Circuit be the last word on the biggest presidential power question in modern history with the guy actively both running for president and facing criminal trial at the same time, this is going to be the kind of thing that the Supreme Court wants itself to be the final word on and wants to craft the specific contours of exactly the point that Roger just made, which is, you know, hey – don't let the district courts bombast, sort of sweep everything off the table. You want to preserve certain things. And so you're going to have a bunch of justices who are going to be like, uh, this is really our job to decide this. Uh, so what do you think? Is this a situation where a ideologically diverse panel does the work, Fifth writes 57 pages, really upsets Quinto with how long they take – and by doing that uh, really disincentivize the justices from granting cert and thus ultimately save time? Or is this a situation where, you know, they took their time, they did a good job, and then we're going to have two months of Supreme Court review anyway?
3: It's a great question. And it's the question we're all going to be debating for the next two or three weeks before we hear back the Supreme Court about a potential cert petition. You know. What I will say is that, obviously, the panel is trying to tee it up to make it as easy to deny cert as possible for the Supreme Court. Um, the fact they put together a per curiam opinion that's ideologically diverse, they have structured, as hopefully we'll get into a little later, they have structured the associated judgment with this opinion in a way that really makes clear there's not going to be an en banc D.C. Circuit consideration of this, or at least very unlikely. They're clearly waiting at the Supreme Court to do something. And they have crafted the opinion in a fairly narrow way, um, uh, which I think with very important caveat. That Roger flagged about how to read it, uh, because if if they are going to make if President Trump is going to make a case for cert, and I'm sure he will try, um, what he's going to do is try and cast this opinion as much wider than it actually is, as having much broader holding. And unfortunately, I think the opinion does leave itself open that if you don't read it a particular way, because it does essentially categorically say, "Hey, we're denying the idea that." Article three courts cannot sit in judgment on a president for official acts. That sounds very, very broad, but as Roger noted, I think quite correctly, an important counterbalance of that is they then go to what they call the kind of functional factors, the policy considerations, and they say, but in considering whether we can allow charges to go forward against the president in any given case, we have to weigh the different governmental equities involved. It's essentially leaving a door open for something that looks a lot like immunity. It's just not going to be a long official acts, unofficial acts line or something so categorical as former President Trump has had offered. But I don't think they do a great job kind of flagging that last aspect. I would have liked to see a little more telegraphing about saying this is a a much narrower holding than you might think, than a lot of people might read it as, because we really are limiting this to the facts of this case. They actually say that expressly at one point, but I would have loved to see that at the very beginning, at the very end, just to constantly be reminding people we're crafting a very narrow opinion. If I had to put money on this, I would say I think the Supreme Court's going to deny cert, because I think the Supreme Court doesn't want to get involved in this. I think it's a very weak legal argument by former President Trump. I think, the DC circuit has done a good enough job narrowly carving its opinion uh, and targeting and tailoring its opinion in a way that Supreme Court will be able to look at it and say, they're not really treading on the other bigger legal equities we really would feel like we need to get involved in to address. I think we're okay with – their handling of this particular case, and we would just assume not get directly involved. That's going to be a messy situation for all of us, um, particularly given the weak arguments involved. And so that's where I think the money falls on this. But we don't really know anybody who actually – Pretends like they have a clear idea whether this is going to be given a cert or not. I think has a much more uh, better view of the Supreme Court than I do, um, and I suspect might be a little overconfident in their understanding of the Supreme Court and how it is approaching this particular question.
0: What do you think, Roger and Quinta? If you're, uh, if we're making reckless predictions here, are you working on the assumption that we're dealing with another Supreme Court layer of review, or that we're done? And the mandate's going to go back to Judge Chutkin and we're going to schedule a trial. Roger and then Quinta.
4: I agree with Scott for exactly the reasons he says. There's a part of me that uh, wonders, you know, if in Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, in the back of his mind, he knows already that they're going to reverse the Colorado court on the in the disqualification case then, you know, that's more reason to let this one lie, you know, to, get, to give, you know, a bone to each side. We're going to let Trump stay on the ballot, but we're going to also let him go to trial before, before uh, the election. I hope that's not what he's thinking uh, and what uh, five justices are thinking, but that might be another factor.
2: Yeah, I've I've been on Team No Cert uh, since the Supreme Court denied uh, cert before judgment in in this case, and I'm sticking to it um, for for all the reasons that Scott and and Roger have identified. I think also it's worth noting there are some aspects of the opinion even beyond the per curiam aspect that sort of speak to me to the the way that this is really crafted to allow the court to deny cert if it wants to. So it they point um at multiple points to opinions by some of the conservative justices in Trump v Vance the case involving uh whether or not Trump could be subject to a criminal process from the Manhattan DA while he was in office the the opinion cites not only to uh Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence which I'll point to to Natalie flag that um for for the team they also point to uh Justice Thomas's dissent um in, in Vance, a line where he says that the president doesn't have total immunity in all circumstances. So there's sort of a tip of the hat to the conservative justices there. And then um, and I'll give credit here to an eagle-eyed reader who pointed this out to me on, on Blue Sky, um, there is a a paragraph where the court points to a number of cases uh litigating uh, judicial criminal immunity for official acts. Um, and says, you know, these these have largely been rejected at the appellate level. And if you look at that paragraph, what you see after each of those cases are the words in italics cert denied, um, which is a, a nice little touch and maybe a, a signal, perhaps, that if the court does decide to deny cert, that that's, you know, perhaps not so unusual and is actually a tactic that it's taken in the past um, when addressing questions of criminal immunity, albeit for judges rather than presidents.
0: If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, And that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about, but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash lawfare. lawfare 20. Well, Natalie, do you want to uh, be the one to say, of course, the Supreme Court is going to hear this case?
5: I do not. My main takeaway here is that the panel did an exceptionally careful job trying to make its ruling as palatable as possible to a Supreme Court of varying impulses on this question. It is certainly a situation in which you can imagine the court, or at least some justices on the court, wanting to have the final word on a matter of such high significance and high stakes. On the other hand, this isn't actually going to be the end of whatever happens in connection with this case, and I think to the extent the court wants to hold its fire, so to speak, there will be other opportunities for this case to appear before them um, where the um, implications of whatever ruling below are um, more complicated um, or are less narrowly drawn than this opinion is, is presenting itself as. That said, I have entirely given up on giving any estimation whatsoever as to what the Supreme Court will do.
0: So I am going to, since nobody else uh, would do it, I am going to be the one who argues for CERT here. I am going to make the argument for CERT on the basis of three uh, things. The first is we all want there to be no more delays and uh a wrench always gets thrown into the plan for accountability. Hence, there will be more delays. I don't know that there'll be big ones or small ones, but uh there's going to be a special section of the brief for cert that's like it will drive Quinta insane and it'll drive Ben insane and Natalie insane. And that's going to be like an argument for cert um and i think one that would carry some weight with some of the justices the second uh, argument uh, on a more serious note is that uh, look this is a potentially enormous presidential power question and if the supreme court does not grant cert in there in in this case this dc circuit opinion will be the principal statement on this subject uh, from now until the end of time because we prosecute so few former presidents. And so every justice is going to look at this opinion with the following question in mind, which is, how much better would this have been if I had written it? And, um, this may come as a surprise to a lot of you, but, um, justices have healthy egos. And if they want the comma over here rather than over here, uh, they are going to want to, you know, some of those, the justices may want this to sound a little bit more like Judge Chutkin's opinion. And some of them, I don't think there's, three votes for the idea that Trump has actual immunity, but the colorations of it along the lines that Roger was talking about earlier, there are many ways to say no. And I think that judges, justices facing this being the the primary statement on the subject until the end of time are going to want to put their stamp on it because that's the kind of arrogant people that they are. So I that is my uh, case for cert actually happening. All right, let's talk about time frame. Roger, you are the master of the mental Tanya Chutkin calendar. So give us a sense of what we know about a likely trial date and time frame In light of this opinion.
4: So the clock stopped on December 7th. That's when um, Trump appealed. There was an automatic stay. We've had 57 days pass. The judge says she wants to give Trump seven months preparation time. If the case was going back to her today, The trial could start April 30th, but it's not. So it's going to... um, The stay will continue until at least February 12th, according to the judgment order. Uh, At that point, uh, it will continue if Trump uh, seeks a stay from the Supreme Court in contemplation of filing a cert petition and then uh I guess it would stay in effect until they rule on that application for the stay before the Supreme Court. If in the meantime Trump if instead of uh applying to the Supreme Court he were to seek uh rehearing and bank before the panel or I mean rehearing of the panel or rehearing and bank of the full DC circuit just to stall the order says that the mandate, uh, the stay on the mandate would lift and the mandate would go back to Chutkin and the clock would start running and she could, she could schedule trial. So that's a strong incentive for Trump to go directly to the Supreme Court. So it it won't start in April, obviously. We can't start the trial again. It doesn't seem likely uh, we could uh, get it started in May, but Early June is a possibility,
0: and what do we know about how long the trial is going to be
4: early on uh Jack Smith or his office said uh, uh four to six weeks for the case in chief i don't I don't remember an estimate by trump's team of of their case, and it would not be credible in any event you know defendants always say our our case is right. going to take four months
0: we have, we have to call the entire deep state
4: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it always vanishes uh, uh, except for you know two witnesses so four to six weeks is still the estimate for the case in chief that means six the to case eight before weeks the total. defense case begins
0: yeah okay so if we're gaming out. And we use an we use eight weeks as a as a you know four to six weeks for the case in chief, two three weeks more. So let's say err on the long side and then add a couple weeks for the defense case. Let's say it's an eight. Depends
4: how how verbose Cash Patel is.
0: Right, right. But you know they're not going to they they have no obligation to present a case. Often the defense doesn't present a case. And when they do, it's never as developed as the prosecution case because it's not on them to tell the story. So let's assume we have a six-week presentation and then two weeks for the rest of the case. So let's let's assume we have an eight-week trial. We could have the mandate delivered as soon as next week, and we need to add the 2 months back that we lost so that would be earliest you could do is sort of early mid May and then 8 weeks from that is mid July and so you have with the supreme court uh consideration of this every month you add adds a month to that time frame right so You really can have like three, the Supreme Court can waste three months on this without preventing a trial before the election, but it can't really waste more than three months. Is that a, a fair, rough sort of napkin, back of the napkin calculation here, or is it more complicated than that?
4: Well, that that might be right, uh, but there are these other cases in play, uh, you know, which are, uh, he can't be doing two trials at once. You so. mean Eileen
0: Cannon might, like, race to beat the... Uh- <laughs>
4: well, I think realistically, the uh, New York case is a possibility. I don't know, honestly, how long the New York case was supposed to last, and that, that was scheduled to start March 25th. Uh, and then we don't know about the Fulton County case where, uh, she had asked for an August date, but then she had also, uh, sort of, uh, toyed with the idea of moving that earlier, assuming, assuming, uh, Fannie Willis remains, uh, the prosecutor. So, uh, th- there's a lot of variables.
5: I mean, one additional point here, though, is it's not necessarily the case that we need to add on all of the time that Judge Chutkin had lost the mandate, because the scheduling order that she issued in advance of all of this, she's not bound by. She can manage her courtroom however she sees fit, as long as it's consistent with due process. But so didn't I would she imagine- say?
0: I think she, she, she issued an order. She was not going to penalize Trump for the time he spent asserting his rights at the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court, that she would give him the seven months that she had originally uh, scheduled.
4: She strongly implied that in a January 18th order. She she was, uh, you know, def- Trump's lawyers were complaining that uh, the government was effectively requiring them to act uh, by filing certain things, and she said, I'm giving, I'm, I, I plan to give you seven months. You're going to get seven months.
5: Yeah, I suspect she will, but she's not bound by it. It's not law. So circumstances can always change. And that is one additional variable that I don't think we should totally lose sight of. It's not an absolute given.
0: All right. So, Scott, one thing that is an absolute given is that the former president is going to continue to try to bog everything down does he have a play here other than a cert petition or is this you know just kind of running out of gas and uh you know it was good for a couple months but it's and it you may have one more round of appellate law on it but then it's out of gas is it good for anything more than that
3: I don't think so, in part because of how the panel structured the judgment that accompanied this opinion, which I think is really interesting and, and, and frankly, one of the more novel and kind of gutsier things the court did in this. They essentially said, you have till February 12th, we're staying the mandate, meaning we're not going to let the trial court continue with this matter until February 12th. And then they said if the president apl- applies for a stay the Supreme Court and notifies as much in, in writing, then the mandate will remain unreturned to the district court, meaning the tr- trial won't continue. So the Supreme Court interaction, other than the fact that Trump has to file it by February 12th, doesn't really change that much. But it said that even if Trump applies for a petitions for a rehearing by the panel or a rehearing on banc, that's by all the active judges on the, on the D.C. Circuit, that will not Stop the mandate. Maybe the mandate will be returned if those decisions are granted, but it's not going to stop automatically the return of the mandate if you just petition for one. It's a really kind of gutsy move because you're basically strongly signaling to Trump, look, it's not worth it applying for these these mandates. And if they thought – other judges on the court would disagreed. I don't think it's something that they would have done, honestly, because it would have been seen as disrespectful. They're essentially saying, hey, fellow judges with whom we have equal status, we are daring you to try and give the on banc hearing to this. We think it's so ludicrous, we're not even going to entertain it by staying our mandate longer. Uh, my suspicion is – that A, they know they're right, because frankly, this is a court where you have Democratic appointees outweighing, outnumbering Republican appointees. We know, especially with Henderson on board with the Democrats, assuming both Democrats view this similarly to Pan and Childs, the votes are not going to be there for on banc anyway. But we don't actually know that, right? Like, Of course, the judges are supposed to actually consider this. But instead, they seem to very comfortably be saying, meaning this panel – we don't think there's a chance these judges will actually issue or agree to hear this on banc. We're so confident in that. We're, we're going to let the trial court proceed. And only if they decide otherwise are we going to pull back the mandate. I think there's a non-zero chance that this was actually run by informally, other judges on the D.C. Circuit, that this might be a lot more like an en banc decision than we think. This isn't totally unprecedented. Um, in 2016, 2017, um, there was, a, a, I think, a Clean Power Act, if I recall, or Clean Power Plan challenge, where the D.C. Circuit, sua sponte, said, hey, we're not even going to hear this in a three-judge panel. We're going to go straight into en banc on this. And you see these things happen sometimes where the judges look at the reality of, Of that's kind of underlying the structural formalities of procedure about how they handle these cases. And sometimes they're willing to coordinate in a sort of unorthodox or unofficial ways on an outcome. I kind of suspect that's what happened here. And that's only really the only way other than like a really, really ballsy move by these three judges to explain how they structured the rehearing on bank and rehearing possibility. It also may help explain why it took so long. Um, Because of course, if you have an opinion that you want other judges to look at, you have to get an opinion, write it with these three judges. That itself is a big undertaking. Judge Henderson is a slow, is a very loquacious writer and not a fast writer, so that probably adds to it. And then you got to give time for all the other judges to read it and maybe give feedback or talk about a little bit. So that might help explain the more extended time frame here. But if it ends up cutting rehearing and rehearing on bunk out of the process, as it appears to have done, then the net savings to the timeline is substantial. Particularly if the Supreme Court. Doesn't grant cert, especially if that's the case. Yes. All
0: right. So uh, Quinta, I assume that President Trump had a, uh, a reasoned and thoughtful and measured response to the D.C. Circuit ruling, as is his wont.
2: Yes, he he wrote, uh, "Save presidential immunity!" exclamation mark in all caps on uh, Truth Social, and wrote, and I will just quote uh, here. Um, a nation destroying ruling like this cannot be allowed to stand. If not overturned as it should be, this decision would terribly injure not only the presidency, but the life, breadth and success of our country. A president will be afraid to act for fear of the opposite party, opposite party, uh, their vicious retribution after leaving office. There's also some creative uh, sort of 18th century style capitalization in there. I don't think that's anything beyond what we would have expected Frankly, I mean, this is sort of in line with the the legal arguments that he's making about how, you know, this immunity is important for the president to carry out the duties of his job. I'm nothing special. You know, I was just doing what every president does. And obviously, the D.C. Circuit uh did not take that particularly seriously.
0: All right, Natalie, one thing that did not feature significantly in this opinion, which you know, I honestly expected to, and Quinta and I uh some, I guess it's months back now, it used to be weeks back, wrote a piece about, you know, sort of Fitzgerald immunity and uh the criminal immunity side of the coin. And one thing that did not show up here much is a lot of discussion of the D.C. Circuit's discussion of Blassingame, uh, the case where it was asked to consider civil immunity for Trump in connection with January 6th, and the Fitzgerald standard. So given that there are only so many ways to slice an immunity onion, why is uh, Fitzgerald and Blassingame not a bigger presence in this uh, opinion than it is?
5: Yeah, so just as a to, to sort of back it up uh, for those who are not too too enmeshed in this, um, Blassingame was the case brought by um, various members of Congress and congressional police against Trump for civil liability. The DC Circuit ruled recently in that after a very very long wait on that opinion as well, much longer than this wait has been, that Trump is not immune from civil liability. It followed on case law in Nixon v. Fitzgerald, which is what Ben just referenced. In that case, the question of civil liability, I'm sorry, I should specify, in Game, the court addressed the question of immunity from civil lawsuits for the president by making a distinction between non-official acts by the president and official acts by the president and ruled that to s- simplify things a little bit, that a president cannot be held civilly liable for acts undertaken in his capacity as office holder, but can be held liable for acts undertaken in his capacity as office seeker, so as a political candidate. Um, so this, in game, the context was his conduct at the Ellipse on January 6th and related conduct. The court there, the D.C. Circuit there said You know, these were acts that were not official acts of the president, but were rather acts of a political candidate running for president. So that distinction could have come up here. There could have been analysis in this decision about whether the conduct alleged in the indictment constituted official acts or non-official acts. But instead, the court here followed on very tightly to what it called Marbury versus Madison and its progeny, and in that in that case that line of cases, the distinction was not between official and non official acts. The distinction was between types of official acts, um, namely what they called discretionary acts, which are sort of political judgment acts, and ministerial acts, which are again also official acts, but this time acts that are mandated by law, um, either by the responsibilities for the president set forth in the Constitution or by acts of Congress. So I think I'll, I'll turn it over to to Quinta to talk about the advisability of doing it this way rather than relying on blessing game. I think th- the one thing I will say is that it was very clear after listening to oral argument where this particular instinct came from. And I think it does do a really important thing in terms of anticipating what the concerns might be for the Supreme Court.
2: Thanks, Natalie. So yeah, so there's there's this footnote 14, um, which I don't know, maybe it will live in infamy along with footnote 4. Uh, that's a real nerd, deep level, deep cut nerd, nerd joke for those of you who are paying attention. Um, so where, where the courts kind of says, look, we're not addressing this official versus unofficial act question, but... <laughs> will point you to Blassingham, and kind of says at the very end, and I'll just quote here, uh, it is thus doubtful that all five types of conduct alleged in the indictment, that's quoting from a brief by Trump, um, constitute official acts. So there's this kind of uh, suggestion of, you know, we're not going to get into this here, but if somebody else, Supreme Court, if you wanted to get into it, here's kind of an intellectual framework that you might use. I also think it's interesting that you see kind of hints about how they might have thought about that distinction in the sections of the opinion on Marbury, um, and the section on addressing the sort of the public policy considerations. Um, so the Marbury section, I do think that that the distinction between discretionary and ministerial and the idea that if something is ministerial, it can be reviewed and if a Law has been broken that that can be reviewed as a kind of inverse of the ministerial um, role of the presidency. That there there's you can see it's not quite official unofficial, but there's a similar way of trying to kind of cleave off parts of Trump's conduct that are acceptable and parts that are not, and sort of div- make that division, which is something that um, Ben and I have have written about a lot. Um, so that's kind of another axis, maybe. Um, and then, uh, you also see this in the section on the sort of public policy implications, given the, this point that's made that, you know, Trump is, is, as, as alleged in the indictment, kind of acting to prevent the laws from being implemented, the law in question being, uh, the constitutional transfer of power and the Electoral Count Act. Um, and so that's kind of a, another way. So you do see these hints. I suspect that perhaps the court just didn't want to have to, really slice and dice the indictment and decide what's in and what's out, especially since they were kind of operating on a, a constrained timeframe. But if the Supreme Court does decide that they want to take this up, I think that there's a number of frameworks they could use to address the issue.
0: But I also think just at a basic level, Blasting Game, that Fitzgerald framework only applies if there is immunity. And if you're if you're just declaring as a blanket matter – I'm sorry, when you're trying to overthrow the election, and, you know, it's a narrow opinion, we're only talking about criminal charges where you're trying to, you know, undermine democracy, there's no immunity. Then you sort of bypass all those questions that you and I spent a lot of time trying to parse over, um, because, you know, it's like driving a, a steamroller over something. All right, Scott, we are looking, the next step is... I guess a quick question of whether the Supreme Court slaps a stay on this during a cert process and then a cert process itself. So what are we looking for as this now heads to the Supreme Court or back to Judge Chutkin? What is the next, what are the next three weeks look like?
3: essentially the mandate is still being held through february 12th so that means that we're going to see something happen in the next 5 days because if former president trump does not petition for or does not motion for seek a stay from the supreme court pending a petition for cert um then the trial court's going to start proceeding with the trial again um so we know that's going to happen in the next 5 days I strongly suspect that you will see first a motion for the stay because it's an easier order to write, an easier thing to lay out. And you'll see actually the full petition for cert coming later where they will spend a little more time on it. Uh, there's a longer time frame for that. They can t- get deeper into their arguments. That initial motion for a stay uh, requires a vote of five justices whereas cert only requires a vote of four. And one of the factors they're supposed to be considering or a couple of the factors they're supposed to be considering is the likelihood that you're going to be granted cert and the likelihood that you're actually going to win on the back end. So in theory, you could read this as a maybe a proxy for how judges might be feeling about the ultimate issues of cert. I would hesitate to do that, because I think this is a case where a lot of justices are going to want to dread carefully if they are even considering taking this up, um, or if they're considering considering taking this up in a serious way. And so I think even though you might say, well, if there's not some sort of likelihood of success at the back end, you pro- you're not supposed to see a, a stay in the mandate in this case. I kind of think you might still, because it's still the president. There are still major separation of powers equities. I think just as, even if they ultimately l- rule against Trump, are going to be hesitant to do so too, um, without at least giving some consideration. And clearly here, that's what the judge, the court here is anticipating, that being the next step. And so we'll get that sort of vote there. Now, if they say no – that is probably a bad sign for Trump, to say the least, because <laughs> the trial will be restarting again. Obviously, judge, enough justice did not see a likelihood on the outcome or didn't think the stakes were high enough for Trump to warrant that sort of action. If you see a yes, that also doesn't necessarily mean, though, that you're going to see cert. Yeah, it means that five were willing to uh, hold up the trial or they considered, waited for a full cert brief, because again, I suspect they're going to rule on this, or at least receive this ap- application for a stay before they actually get the full petition for cert. You know, I don't I wouldn't read too much into that either way. I suspect we're gonna see a lot of gnashing of teeth, uh, and a lot of concern whichever way the Supreme Court ultimately ends up ruling on this, and once we see this motion uh entered in. But I, I wouldn't use it too much to judge, despite the vote thresholds, despite the various standards applied. I think we won't really know what the court's gonna do on Cert until we see the Supreme Court decide on CERT. We won't know until we know in other words we're going to leave it there Scott
0: R Anderson Natalie Orpet Quinta Jurassic Roger Parloff thank you all for joining us today The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution our audio engineer this episode testing our really cool snazzy new system for live live streaming and podcasting was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Folks, you missed the opportunity today to be in the studio with us watching this live recording. And, you know, that's sad for you, but tomorrow you can be there. Thursday, we're going to do it again, and you can be there. Become a material supporter of Lawfare. Do it at lawfaremedia.org slash support. Come into the light. Join that chat with our lovely material supporters. It's a high-level, serious discussion every time, and you can be part of it. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya. Our music is performed by the one, the only, Sophia Yan.